Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. If you're new here, welcome. For those of you that left reviews since the last time when I made a plea, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I love reading everyone's kind words. I know everyone is eager to get back to today's case. This is part two of Randy and Timothy Miller's story. If you're new here, you will really want to listen to part one before listening here, because if not, this case really isn't going to make a lot of sense. And in actuality, this case will never make sense. But if you want to hear the story, start there first. Now, on to business. Last time, we spoke about Specialist Yvette Davila's obsession with a soldier named DC. She became close to the Millers to remain somewhat connected to DC, who was no longer in town, but who kept in contact with his good friends, the Millers. Last time we left off, Yvette had killed the Millers in cold blood. The car she stole broke down, and she was now at her barracks room without her own car keys because she left them in Mrs. Schmidt's car the night prior. Join me today as I bring you the conclusion of the tragic story of Randy and Timothy Miller. Now, let's dig in. My sources for this episode remain the same as part one, but just a reminder that my main source is the record of trial from 2010. After Yvette had secretly been messaging with DC using the Miller's phone, she remembered she had a crime scene to tend to. So at about 11 o'clock in the morning, she messaged Mrs. Schmidt to tell her that she'd be walking to her house to get the car keys. Mrs. Schmidt told Yvette that she'd pick her up and they ended up meeting along the way. Yvette jumped into the car and immediately said she was hungry. And Mrs. Schmidt said that she could take her through the Burger King drive-thru. And Yvette agreed. But once she got there, Yvette was like, please, nothing with me. So they changed plans and went to Cinnabon instead. They headed towards the PX and along the way, Mrs. Schmidt noticed that Yvette had two phones and she was like, hey, what's up with that? And Yvette said that she had borrowed a phone from a friend to call DC and trick him into thinking she was someone else. Mrs. Schmidt must have been like, this psycho biatch, but at least I hope that's what she thought. But I guess I'll never know. Honestly, maybe Mrs. Schmidt felt some sympathy for Yvette because Yvette told her that after the club the night before, she went home, drank alone, and cried. At the PX food court, Yvette changed her mind yet again, and she didn't get Cinnabon. She ended up getting a vegetarian sandwich at Robin Hood Sandwich Shop instead. Mrs. Schmidt dropped Yvette off at her car, and Yvette basically invited herself to eat her sandwich at Mrs. Schmidt's house. But Yvette did another weird thing. Minutes after arriving at Mrs. Schmidt's house to eat her sandwich, 
She took two bites and then she just up and left without saying why or where she was going. Throughout that morning, Yvette was using the Miller phone and at some point, the Millers received a text message from Staff Sergeant Sean Bobby, who was extremely close with the Millers. Bobby and the Millers rode motorcycles together and he and Timothy were practically like brothers. On Friday, March 1st, Bobby had asked the Millers if they wanted to go riding on Sunday, but Timothy told him that he couldn't. But listen, when Sunday rolled around, Bobby wanted to ask one last time because, you know, Sunday plans always change, and who wants to pass up on a beautiful Sunday ride? Bobby sent a text message asking, you sure you don't want to come for a ride? And Yvette, posing as the Millers, responded that they were too busy and couldn't meet up that day. And Bobby left it at that. After Yvette left the Schmidt house, she decided she needed to go to Lowe's. She made her way to the store, hoping that she wouldn't bump into anyone who would recognize her. But wouldn't you know it, as she was walking in, she saw a sergeant who worked with her. She was hoping he didn't see her, but then he waved at her and he said, Hey, Davila. Oh, shit. I'm sure she thought. But just as he approached her, she was like, Can't talk. Gotta go. Bye. She grabbed her a car and beelined to the paint department. There, she grabbed four gallons of muriatic acid, a bucket, and chemical stripper. And just then, a Lowell's employee saw what she was buying and was like, girl, don't forget the chemical goggles and a respirator. It's a must when dealing with muriatic acid. And Yvette obeyed, putting those items in her cart as well. Yvette went to the checkout line where she realized she didn't have sufficient cash for the purchase and she was not about to use her debit card and leave a paper trail. Mind you, Lowe's has surveillance video and her coworker just saw her, but you know, whatever. Thank goodness for dumb criminals. Yvette put her cart to the side, hoping that no one would put away her items. She jumped into her car, drove two miles to an ATM machine where she withdrew $200 cash. She went back to Lowe's and checked out with her menagerie of sinister items and she checked out by 12.45 p.m. Yvette then made her way back to the Miller's house. She unloaded her supplies and she went into the bathroom where the dead bodies of the Miller's lay stacked in the bathtub. Yvette then poured one gallon of muriatic acid over the Miller's bodies. At some point, she turned the water on, but honestly, I don't know the extent of what else she did and why she only used one gallon of muriatic acid. As soon as Yvette was done, she left the house and now she had one more thing to take care of before her plan was complete. She needed to get her hands on the Miller's baby. And if you're thinking, oh, sh the baby. Y'all, this story is something else. My thought at this point in the story was if that girl touches one hair on that baby's head, I will go to wherever she is and I will beat her ass myself. Anyway, where was I? Yvette, using the Miller's phone, returned Miss P's call. Remember, she was the babysitter, Miss P was. Well, before I continue down that storyline, let me go back to earlier in the morning when Miss P was trying to call the Miller's. She had actually been calling the Millers for two reasons. One, baby Kay developed a fever that morning and she wanted the Millers' permission to give her baby a fever reducer. 
And then two, she wanted to know when they were picking up the baby because Miss P had plans that day. But since Miss P was not able to get through to the Millers, she ended up leaving baby K with her own daughter for just a little bit. By the time Yvette made contact with Miss P, all of this was moo. So Yvette came up with a plan to get her hands on baby K. She was going to tell Miss P that she was a friend of the Millers and they asked her to pick up the baby for them. Also, Yvette was going to confirm this by using the Miller phone to text Miss P and ask her to release the baby to Yvette. Of course, while saying that they couldn't call and speak to Miss P because the phone got wet and the speaker didn't work, so text messaging was their only means of communication. But wait, Yvette programmed her phone to restricted mode. It's kind of like caller ID, so that anyone receiving a call from her number would not know who was calling. So it's kind of like blocking your caller ID. Yvette did this, and then she called her squad leader. When her squad leader answered the phone, Yvette said hi, and at first, the sergeant wasn't sure who it was because the number was restricted, but eventually she told him it was her. Yvette then asked a sergeant how her number appeared on his caller ID, and he said, hey, it showed up as restricted, and she was like, great, okay, bye. The sergeant thought it was weird, but it was Sunday, and young people do dumb stuff like this all the time, so he just let it go. Yvette had started texting Miss P earlier from the Miller's phone. Miss P received various messages or text messages from the Miller phone stating things like, hi, I'm sorry, quote, we're not home and I won't be for a while. I have a standby babysitter. I'll call one, end quote. And there was another message that said, quote, I got one. They will call you, end quote. Then in the afternoon, after her last visit to the Miller home, Yvette called Miss P from the restricted number and told her, hey, the Millers asked me to pick up baby K. Miss P thought that this was legit and she gave Yvette her address. Yvette said that she would be in Payolup by 3 p.m. But Yvette is a dumbass and she couldn't find the address, so she called Miss P and she agreed to meet Yvette down the street. Miss P pulled up with baby K and Yvette introduced herself as simply Martinez and told her the whole story about how she drove from Olympia, blah, blah, blah. Now, Miss P shared her concerns that she hadn't been able to actually speak to the Millers. And Miss P even shared that she was somewhat skeptical about transferring the baby because she hadn't actually spoke to the Millers. But Yvette assured her that the only reason the Millers couldn't talk was because the phone fell in water and now the speaker wasn't working. But listen, y'all, even if I dropped my phone in water, I'd be using someone's phone to make contact with my babysitter. Anyway, Miss P was like, are you sure they said to give you the baby? And Yvette was like, yes. Now, please, do you mind putting the baby in the car seat and securing the car seat to the car? Because I don't know how to do that. Now, Miss P was not so sure about this, but she did as Yvette asked. When Baby K was secured in the car, Miss P gave Yvette a basket with Baby K's items, including baby toys, one bottle with formula, and one diaper. Miss P then was like, please give me your phone number in case I need it. And Yvette was like, nope, if you need anything, call the Millers. And then she bounced. (laughs) 
Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Yvette entered Fort Lewis with baby K at about 4 p.m. on March 2nd. Instead of going to her barracks room, however, she realized she needed some baby items. She went to the PX where she bought some baby items. She checked out at about 4.43 p.m. and then she went to her room. Yvette sat in her car for a minute trying to figure out how she was going to basically smuggle a baby into the barracks room without passing the quarters desk. She decided that she would make two trips, first to drop off baby K and then a second trip to get all the bags. Now Yvette used a side door to evade being seen and she successfully brought baby K into her room. Her second trip would not be as sneaky though because as she was walking in with the stuff, she bumped into her honor guard buddy, Specialist Nelson. And he was like, hey, Yvette, why do you have all these baby items? And Yvette awkwardly, she kind of just laughed and she's like, yeah, I'm babysitting. Specialist Nelson then followed Yvette to her room, not in a creepy kind of way, more in a sweet, oh my gosh, there's a baby in the dorms kind of way. At least that's how I envision it in my head. Well, Nelson then went to the room and he began to help with the baby. And the first order of business was to feed baby K. While Nelson was in the room, he could sense that something was off. Maybe there was tension in the air or something else. But he kept asking Yvette over and over and over again what was wrong. And every single time she said that she didn't want to talk about it. But Nelson was persistent. And can I just say, thank goodness for Nelson. Yvette eventually broke down and she started to cry. Nelson just sat there and he's sitting on the floor. She joins him on the floor and then she puts her head on his lap and she continues to cry. She said she had done something really bad. And Nelson was like, well, tell me, what did you do? Yvette blurted out that she thought she killed them. 
Now, Nelson was utterly confused. Killed who? And he kept pressing her and eventually Yvette told him that she took a gun and shot Randy and Timothy Miller. She went into excruciating detail. She shot Randy twice. She shot Timothy multiple times, even after he told her that it hurt. She then told Nelson of her plan to drop off baby Kay at an orphanage. Specialist Nelson was shocked. But unlike other shocked people I've talked about on this show, he was proactive. He begged Yvette to call the cops, telling her that they are the only ones that could help her in this situation. Yvette said no, absolutely not. Nelson at this point, though, he does not want to be in this room with Yvette because her gun and silencer are right there in the same room where they are chatting. Nelson then said, "Okay, all right, fine. We don't have to call the cops. Let's at least call our squad leader. Let's at least go outside. Let's go downstairs. And eventually, Yvette agreed. They walked out, leaving baby Kay in the room alone. Once they are no longer in the barracks room and there's no gun in sight, Nelson called the police. So bear with me. They're on a military installation, so the first responders will be military police. Now, while I have a podcast called Military Murder, it's not every day that military police deal with a case like this. So they were probably very confused by the 911 call. I can only imagine the confusion. A soldier killed two people and now there's a baby in the barracks? MPs eventually arrive and Yvette told them, quote, I killed two people, end quote. But she doesn't elaborate any further and she doesn't want to talk about it. Hearing that there might be a baby in the room, they take Yvette up to her room and ask her permission to go inside. Which, listen, y'all, you have an eyewitness telling you that he saw a random baby in the barracks room. You do not need her permission to enter for the baby's safety. But listen, I digress. As they approach the room, the MPs hear the baby cry and Yvette lets them into the room. They enter to retrieve the baby and they see the bag with the gun in plain sight. And then they turn around and Yvette is not there. I imagine at this point there is slight panic, like where the hell did she go? But when they search, Yvette hasn't gone very far. She's just in the bathroom. The MPs ask her what she's doing and she said, get this, she needed to brush her hair. What in the world? Okay, so have y'all heard the non-military true crime case of Jody Arias? This case gives me total Jody Arias vibes. And if you look up Jody Arias's mugshot, it looks like a dang high school yearbook photo. Anyway, Jody Arias was very much a stalker girl, just like Yvette Davila. All right, back to Yvette. Yvette was taken into custody at this point, and baby Kay was placed with Child Protective Services. All of this information is according to the stipulation of fact that the judge used in this case, if anyone's wondering. After this, the MPs with Yvette in custody, they ask her to take them to the Miller's house, and she does. She points them in that direction. The Tacoma Police Department responded to the crime scene at the Miller's house, and Yvette was subsequently transferred into their custody. As I've already pointed out, Yvette left so much evidence in her wake that this was kind of a slam dunk case. A search of Yvette's barracks room revealed the following. Two boxes of ammo, 
a Glock 40 caliber semi-automatic handgun, a suppressor, a tube of grease for the suppressor, Baby K's baby basket with her items, and they found Randy's wallet. Inside a trash bag in her room, investigators also discovered a gallon of unopened muriatic acid. A search of Yvette's car revealed the following, two unopened gallons of muriatic acid, 10 pounds of absorbent, which is an absorbent that turns wet spills into a powder-like substance. They also discovered a metal can of KS3 stripping solvent and two respiratory replacement cartridges. She also had a white garbage bag filled with sneakers, Nintendo games, safety goggles, two baby bibs, orange rubber gloves, a safety respirator, and one army uniform. They also found a 22-inch machete knife, brand new, unopened, hidden under the trunk carpet above the spare tire. And sadly, they also found two of Randy's army combat uniforms. And you know what is so unfathomable to me? Remember the case of the Peachicks double murder, which I covered on episode eight? In that case as well, the murderous Marines also stole a military uniform. And I just don't understand why a murderer would do that. I mean, I don't understand why a murderer would commit murder, but it almost makes the heinous crime even more heinous, in my personal opinion, when they steal the person's uniform. Listen, in this case, there was so much physical evidence, but there was one thing that was missing. Motive. Why did Yvette Davila kill the Millers so cold-heartedly? And the answer? Well, there was no real motive. And y'all just love a good motive. Honestly, I tell true crime stories on TikTok and people will straight come out of the woodworks and I'll tell them a true crime story and they will be like, yeah, but what's the motive? Okay, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't know, Karen. She's a crazy biatch. Is that not motive enough? But listen, all kidding aside, this case is so difficult to discuss because we will never understand the motive. Why did the Millers have to die? After her arrest, investigation revealed a lot of deeply disturbing things about Yvette long before the murders even took place. I think even long before she met the Millers. A search of her computer revealed that Yvette was conducting searches on her computer about muriatic acid and its effects. But get this, at some point in late 2006, a whopping 15 months before the murders, Yvette had ordered a 55-gallon drum that she kept in a secret storage unit. In wait, you know how sometimes when you're searching for something online, you start clicking along on random things that are kind of related, but sometimes not? Well, while Yvette was searching for information on muriatic acid, a true crime article popped up and she clicked on it. That article was about the High Tower murders. Honestly, when I heard that case, it didn't ring a bell for me. But thankfully, the prosecutors in this case thought it significant enough to add it to the record. And boy, is it eerie. In that case, a man named Christopher Hightower, who's an investment banker, who was an investment banker, he committed a triple murder of his neighbors. He killed a mom, a dad, and her child. And then he used muriatic acid to clean the crime scene. 
And this is what Yvette had been looking at on her computer. So holy crap, did Yvette get the idea about the muriatic acid from this case? I don't know. On Monday, March 3rd, 2008, back in Nevada, Timothy's mother, Mrs. Gray, she woke up and she was getting ready for the day when she got a call from Timothy's godmother. The godmother had been watching Good Morning America and she heard that there was a double murder of two soldier medics outside of Fort Lewis and that a little boy had been kidnapped. Mrs. Gray, Timothy's mom, she gasped. That was horrible. But the godmother was sure that the house that flashed on the screen was Timothy and Randy's house. Mrs. Gray was like, no way. But she hung up the phone and she went straight to the television to turn on Good Morning America. And I guess that they ran the newscast again because this time Mrs. Gray was watching like a hawk. Even though she was sure that she had nothing to worry about because a baby boy had been kidnapped and she had a granddaughter. Now, Mrs. Gray watched and they say that again, they mentioned that a dual army couple from Fort Lewis had been shot in their home, and they say it again, a little boy had been kidnapped. As they're saying this, they pan to the house, and Mrs. Gray is now a little nervous. And as she's watching, investigators are walking into the house, you know, because Good Morning America is set up outside, and she's watching this on TV, and immediately, Mrs. Gray's knees buckle underneath her as she sees the pictures lined up in the entryway of the house that investigators are walking into. And in the back, she also sees a crib. Immediately, she knows that's her son's house. Mrs. Gray loses it right there in front of the television. Even though no one has officially notified her, she knows. She's officially notified three hours later. Her son and daughter-in-law have been murdered. Her granddaughter had been kidnapped but was already recovered. One by one, Mrs. Gray and her husband had to break the news to Timothy's siblings and they were all heartbroken. Similarly, Timothy's father found out kind of in the same manner. Tim's father had gotten ready for work as his wife watched Good Morning America. And as she was watching, she saw the same news. Two army medics murdered in their home. But she saw the house and then with her DVR, she went back and replayed it and she could see the house number. So she went to her address book and chills went down her spine when she realized that what she was watching on TV was in fact Timothy's house. She told Timothy's father that she thought it was Timothy's house, but He was shocked and he refused to believe it. Since he hadn't been formally notified, it couldn't be true, right? So he packed it up and he went to work. But while he was at work, he got a call. He needed to come home immediately. In court, Timothy's father would later describe walking into his house and seeing the chaplain. He said, quote, there was no air in the house. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't do anything, end quote. Randy's father, well, he found out a bit differently. He returned home that Monday, and when he got home, he found his wife crying. He hugged his wife and asked her what was wrong, and she told him that the neighbors said that they saw a few uniformed personnel walk up to the house, but they weren't home. 
She just knew. She felt it in her heart of hearts that it must be something bad. And sure enough, a few hours later, they got the formal casualty notification. And it was confirmed. His only daughter was gone, snatched too soon from this life. Sadly, while the Miller's families were being notified of the tragedy, their unit back at Fort Lewis heard the news during morning PT formation. Now, PT stands for physical training. Sergeant Bobby recalled being in formation and leadership walking in and telling them that Randy and Timothy were dead. And Sergeant Bobby just couldn't believe it. He just couldn't believe it. How could they be dead? He immediately left PT to see for himself because he just, like I said, couldn't believe it. Bobby drove to the Miller's house. And when he got there, it all started to sink in. This is real. He saw media and investigators outside the house. And immediately, Bobby became the Miller's family liaison. He worked hand in hand with the casualty officer. He helped to do the normal everyday things that you don't think about when someone dies. He described that he had to stop the Miller's mail. He had to pick up the mail that was still getting delivered to their house. He helped the family navigate through everything that happens when you lose a loved one in the military. Y'all, while this entire case is tragic and reading the family's testimonies really hit me hard, I just wanted to share a sentiment. There was something about reading Sergeant Bobby's testimony that had me in full-blown streaming tears. The way that he described what he did for the Millers, it was something I had never really thought about in telling these stories. We always think about the victims and their families. But what about the military family? The ones who spend the most time with us, our coworkers, our emergency contacts, our neighbors, the ones we ride motorcycles with, the ones we cut cakes for at work. What about them? They have to go back to work and act like nothing happened. It's truly heart-wrenching. These crimes, they go beyond blood relatives because there's something about military life that binds us for life, really. So I just wanted to take just a minute to acknowledge them as well. Timothy's family eventually traveled to Fort Lewis within 48 hours of being notified of the worst day of their life. And when they arrived at Fort Lewis, Mrs. Gray, Tim's mom, she describes being taken to a building and told to wait. And that's when they brought in baby Kay. That moment hit everyone like a ton of bricks. Because while they knew it was real that they would never see Timothy and Randy alive again, seeing baby Kay, a little baby, she was like six or seven months old at the time, without parents, that's when the reality of it all really sank in. They hugged baby Kay and they squeezed her and never wanted to let her go. Timothy's mom and stepdad do have custody of baby Kay, for those of you wondering. While they were at Fort Lewis getting everything in order, someone got dog tags for everyone so that they could wear them as a constant reminder of the Millers. I do want to mention that Timothy Miller was posthumously promoted to the rank of Staff Sergeant. That's why I have referred to him as Staff Sergeant throughout this episode.
Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. Yvette committed this heinous crime in the civilian sector, so the civilians could have tried the case. But the army requested jurisdiction and they promised that they would be seeking the harshest punishment, the death penalty. And with this reassurance, the military was granted jurisdiction of the case and Yvette Davila was transferred into military custody where she was held at the Bangor Naval Submarine Base. Back in military custody, Yvette was charged with two counts of premeditated murder, breaking and entering, and kidnapping. Not surprisingly, not too much was released to the media after the military got jurisdiction of the case. I do want to take a minute to mention something. When this case first hit the news, it was very salacious. In an article published in the Seattle Times on March 4th, just two days after the murders, the headline read, quote, jealousy may have fueled killings of two fellow Fort Lewis soldiers, end quote. Now, the article described what had been stated in the probable cause declaration, and it said that the murders were committed because Yvette believed that Randy was having an affair with D.C. What? Yep. Specifically, the affidavit stated, quote, Davila told another soldier that Randy Miller was in a relationship with Davila's ex-boyfriend, another soldier who had apparently chosen Randy Miller over Davila, end quote. Now, imagine losing your loved ones in a tragic double murder and then reading this headline. I was searching online and I saw commentators talking about this and I saw people who knew Randy come to her defense stating that this was far from the truth. She was not having an affair. Myself, not knowing anything better, I can say this, at least from reading the full transcript, that I do not believe that Randy was having an affair with DC. Whether Yvette believed that in her jacked up mind, I don't know, but she never reveals that as a motive, at least not during her trial. The only reason I mention this is because I know many of you like to Google the cases that I cover to read for yourself, and I just don't want you to believe that I missed anything. I honestly and wholeheartedly believe that Randy was not having an affair and that Yvette killed the Millers in an act of revenge. Yvette's military trial would begin in August of 2010, more than two years after the double murder. 
But if you expected this to be a fully litigated trial where the death penalty was actually on the table, well, you'd be disappointed because Yvette brokered a plea agreement with the government in exchange for removing the death penalty from the table. Yvette ended up pleading guilty to two counts of premeditated murder and kidnapping. The charge of breaking and entering was ultimately dismissed. And I believe this charge was dismissed because once the government heard the facts from Yvette's side, they realized that Yvette didn't break into anyone's house. She was actually invited into the home by the unsuspecting victims. Yvette chose to have her sentence handed down by the military judge alone. Well, if you're thinking, this girl is not a right mind, you wouldn't be totally wrong, and everyone thought that. There were two sanity boards conducted on Yvette to determine if she was in the right mind to be tried. The first board took place in June of 2008, and the second took place in May of 2009, or at least that's when the results were returned to the court. I won't get too much into the sanity boards because in the records that I received, Yvette was diagnosed with a mental health disorder, but her diagnosis was redacted, although it should be noted that at least one expert diagnosed her with PTSD, but the PTSD was not a result of combat since she had never deployed. In actuality, Yvette had been the victim of child sexual abuse at the hands of one of her mother's boyfriends. But the sanity board did find that Yvette was of sound mind to stand trial. In any event, let's talk about Yvette's PTSD and what it stemmed from. As I mentioned just a minute ago, Yvette had suffered sexual abuse at the hands of one of her mother's boyfriends. But as soon as her mother got wind of the abuse, she reported the boyfriend to authorities. He actually went on to serve time for the crime. And while Yvette's mom did get Yvette counseling, it was brief as the mom did not believe it was helpful. After experiencing sexual abuse, Yvette retreated into herself. Living in a house with two other girls, Yvette found one safe place in her home, the closet. It was described that from a very young age, Yvette would lock herself in the closet with her toys and she would spend hours upon hours upon hours in there alone. That was her safe place and her family just allowed it. She played with her Barbies in there and she seemed to be content. She kept those same Barbies her entire life, even bringing them with her to the army. And it was revealed that at some point when DC told Yvette that she was too immature for him, she went as far as disposing of her childhood Barbie dolls in an effort to become more mature. She actually even redecorated her barracks room for the same reason. I don't want anyone to think that I am mentioning this to downplay her heinous crime, but this is all part of the actual trial. But I also mention this to show how real life childhood trauma can play out as an adult. Whenever Yvette made the decision to have a sexual relationship with a man, she clinged on to him with all her might and he didn't know what her background was. Maybe she envisioned a life like the ones the Millers had. And when she realized that that would not happen with the man that she obsessed over, she felt like she had to take it away from the Millers. I've mentioned this before, but in military trials, the accused does have to tell the judge in their own words why they're guilty. And this part of the trial is called a care inquiry. I always thought that this was how all trials were handled, including civilian trials, 
but that is not the case. But it is something nice that the military does. During the care inquiry in this case, the judge asked Yvette to tell him in her own words why she believed she was guilty. She began, quote, Yes, sir. Saturday night, March 1st, 2008. I was very upset over losing my boyfriend. I couldn't accept it. The Millers were his friends and my connection to him. I was at the Emerald Queen Casino with some friends and I began thinking about my ex-boyfriend. I got upset and overwhelmed and decided to go back home to my barracks, end quote. Even though Yvette was pleading guilty, she really downplayed the extent of her premeditation. She said that in the cab, she was feeling upset and overwhelmed and angry, and that after texting with the Millers, she decided that she would meet up with them. But when she returned to her room, she saw the gun, and at that point, she decided to kill the Millers. Which, listen here, if this is true, why had she told the cab driver that she had to make three pit stops? It really doesn't add up. While Yvette did make some wild allegations about feeling uncomfortable when she was at the Miller's house, Yvette indicated to the judge that the Millers didn't do anything that night that caused her to react the way that she did. Her intent was to kill and no one was going to change her mind. As for the acid, Yvette told the judge that she did that to get rid of evidence. She actually thought it would make the victim's wounds look different and she thought it would throw off the investigation. After conferring with her defense counsel, Yvette told the judge that halfway through using the acid, she had a change of heart and she tried to wash the acid off with water. After Yvette cleaned up, she told the judge that she returned to the first floor and she was just pacing back and forth trying to figure out what was next. And that's when she saw the Miller phone had a ton of missed calls. And that's when she remembered the baby. She immediately went to the baby's room and saw that the baby wasn't there. And that's when she panicked because she knew that people would come looking for the Millers sooner rather than later. After the care inquiry was completed, ultimately, the judge did find Yvette guilty of premeditated murder and kidnapping. Then it was time for sentencing. The government did an excellent job of allowing the witnesses to describe the victims and how their loss was felt across their family and the community. The government allowed most of their witnesses, which were the victim's family members and close friends, to describe where they were when they heard the news. And reading those words really made me realize how losing one person can affect so many people. There's a ripple effect. When it was time for the defense to present a sentencing argument, they called Yvette's mom and the sisters and even one of her aunts. Of course, the defense counsel called some of the experts who sat in Yvette's sanity board because, of course, they were looking for any evidence that could mitigate Yvette's actions. During sentencing, Yvette's defense counsel boiled down this case to what it really was. Yvette acted out when she couldn't get what she wanted. He said that while D.C., Yvette's alleged boyfriend, only saw a casual relationship, Yvette saw her salvation. On August 24, 2010, Judge Henley sentenced Yvette Davila to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Her appeal to the Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces was denied in 2012. It appears that for years, Yvette Davila was housed in a military prison 
at the Brig Miramar in San Diego. But a few years ago, Timothy's mother began a change.org petition because unbeknownst to the victim's families, Yvette was moved to FCI Dublin, a low-security federal correctional institution with an adjacent minimum security satellite camp and detention center. FCI Dublin is located in California, for those of you wondering. Now, Mrs. Gray wrote in the petition that she was outraged because the family was never notified of the move, and they, in fact, live only hours from this location. There were a handful of heartfelt comments on the change.org petition website, and reading through them really hit home what Yvette did. One commentator, a cousin of one of the victims, wrote, quote, Yvette Davila has shaken our entire family. For years on end, she has been the monster living in the back of all of our minds, reminding us of the lives she stole and the lives she forever altered. It is absolutely absurd that this criminal is being granted first world luxuries, that she is being made more comfortable for good behavior. Those rights were taken from Yvette the day she chose to murder my innocent cousins, take them away from their sweet daughter, and forever change the lives of those who loved them, end quote. By the way, I did look up Yvette's whereabouts today, and she does appear to still be located at FCI Dublin. This case affected so many lives. Clearly, Timothy and Randy lost their lives. Their families lost loved ones. Their coworkers and friends, they lost friendships. The army lost. Well, I can go on and on. But what about baby Kay? She lost both parents and in an instant, she became an orphan. Of course, I can only imagine that she is loved like no other by all of the survivors in this case. But listen, baby Kay is no longer a baby. She's 14. She's going to be 15 years old this year. Mrs. Gray, her grandmother, but really her earth mom, described during the trial back in 2010 how tough it was for baby Kay to not have a mom and dad. And I just want to share one of Mrs. Gray's stories with you that really hit close. She said that when baby Kay was only three years old, she'd always see everyone's moms and dads coming and going. And Mrs. Gray made it a point to always have pictures of Timothy and Randy at the house so that baby Kay knew who her parents were. And baby Kay would occasionally say, hey, that's my mommy and daddy, huh, grandma? And she would say things like, this is my house. And Mrs. Gray always responded in the affirmative. Baby Kay would ask, well, when is mommy and daddy going to come to my house and see me? And Mrs. Gray told the court, what do you say to that? What do you say to a three-year-old who's wondering why their mommy and daddy aren't visiting her? So Mrs. Gray did a thing, the only thing that she knew how to do, she told Baby Kay that her parents were in heaven. And whenever Baby Kay would draw a picture for mom and dad, her grandparents, they would tie the picture to some balloons and then they'd go outside 
and they'd send them up to heaven. True Crime Army, I hope I was able to do this case some justice because I just felt that the media coverage was very scant. Thank you all so much for listening and I hope that you'll stick around. Make sure that you click the subscribe button so that you never miss a new episode of Military Murder. If you need more Mama Margot true crime stories, make sure that you sign up for the fan club where you can listen to dozens of more true crime stories that are not available on my public feed. And on top of bonus content, you get every single episode from episode one through episode 100 plus completely ad free. Be sure to visit patreon.com slash military murder to sign up now. You can see the different levels. There's really awesome things there. Make sure that you're following me on social, on Instagram, I'm at Military Murder Podcast. And on TikTok, I'm at Military Margot with a T at the end. You want to make sure you follow me on TikTok because I do a lot of quick true crime stories that I probably won't cover on the podcast. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and is produced in collaboration with all of my boot camp and higher fan club members. Shout out to my newest associate producers, Michelle and Tony. Shout out to my newest assistant producers, Angela, Gabriel, and Tremondi. And shout out to my newest annual supporter, Michael. Also, just another big shout out to the rest of my newest supporters, Sarah, Fatima, Annie, Lauren. I got two new Hollies in the house, Candice, Patricia, Darmelia, April, and Alfredo. The music of this podcast was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember... You never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next time. Working on our podcast. I don't want to.